0: Father, I pray and seek you, knowing that I need a power that goes beyond anything I have. I pray that you would teach us today, Lord, as I 've sought you in private, I pray for um, our hearts to be touched today and our lives changed, our wills challenged to walk with you to embrace your grace, experience your love and power, and then be transformed. In Jesus name. Amen. So, if you go to a a job interview or maybe you're going to volunteer somewhere or maybe go to a dating site, the question always comes up, how would you describe yourself? How would you describe yourself? And I put that out on our connections Facebook page just ask people how would you describe yourself here's some of the answers I got one was adequate okay self-aware somebody just said me I thought that's kind of biblical (laughs) at the burning bush Moses said who shall I say is sending me and God says me I am is sending you so good for that person Somebody else said, approachable, observant, adventurous, loyal to a fault, too critical, mostly on self, empathetic, mom, wife, daughter, and Christian. Okay, like it. And then somebody said, I'm looking at you, unique, weird, loyal, dorky, and tired. (laughs) Uh, You know who you are. Very self-aware person said, five stars and two thumbs up. (laughs) Somebody said, extremely medium. It's pretty funny. Somebody just gave the, I don't know emoji. And then somebody said, an Enneagram eight with a lot of nine and some two. Fair enough. Today, we're going to ask that question of God. God, how would you describe yourself? We've been in a series now where, um, if, if you're new with us, we've been reading the Bible. We're going from cover to cover. We started the week after Easter. And the sermons aren't lining up exactly, obviously, with where we're at in our reading, but we're going through the, the stories, the highlights. And right now we've been, we're in the book of Exodus. We went through Genesis. And we're calling it Longing for Rest because we're traveling with Moses and the children of Israel wandering in the desert, and you see them wander for 40 years, what should have only taken two weeks. They, they wandered and bickered and moaned and all this stuff. They were longing for rest. What should have taken two weeks took 40 years. And so what, when we talk about God and we talk about how would he describe himself, A.W. Tozer, I don't know if you've ever read anything by A.W. Tozer, but he said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why is that true? Because who God is shapes our identity. Who God is shapes how we see ourselves, others, and Him in life. So two, I want to give you a couple foundational points before we get into the actual passage that we're going to read today out of Exodus and talk through. First point I want to make is this you become like the god you worship. Your view of God is become you're becoming like that. You think of a lot of things that that need to be unlearned in how we view God based on bad interpretation of scripture, bad teaching, uh, bad understanding of the Bible itself and who, how God revealed Himself. I think of the Westboro Baptist people in Wichita, Kansas. And they have a view of God that He's retributive, angry, critical, judgmental, and violent. Then they become that. They become, we become like the God who we worship. George MacDonald was a Scottish preacher a couple hundred years ago. And he said, good souls many will one day be horrified at the things they now believe about God. And that's scary in itself. I don't want to think wrong about God. I want to think rightly about God. And that should be all of our approach to understanding Scripture and the Gospel. The Apostle John, who was an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he said, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's for sure a future thing he's talking about, that when Jesus comes again at the second coming of Christ, and his glory is revealed and we see him as he is, We will be changed, too. And yet, I think that has a current application, a present application, that the better view I have of God, the more I become like Him in His goodness and His character and His love and all the things that describe who God is, a longing for justice, those things that describe who God is. So the context of what I'm about to read is I'm going to read from Exodus 34, but it, the context is Moses has gone up the, the mountain to meet with God. And the children of Israel got impatient. And so they tell Aaron, Moses' right hand man, hey, let's make a God that we can worship. And if you remember, throughout this story, God's number one thing is don't worship other gods, don't make idols. Don't pursue these these foreign gods. It's bad for you. And what do they do? As soon as they get impatient, they come to Aaron and they say, Moses has taken too long. Let's make a god. And they gather all the jewelry and gold that they have. They melt it down and they make this golden calf. And they throw this big worship celebration. And Moses comes back down the mountain and is like, you've got to be kidding me. can't leave you... Kids alone for for five minutes without you stirring something up, and Moses now is going back up the mountain to intercede on the people, and he tell for the people, and he tells God, he says, "Show me your glory." And here's what happens: the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, "The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger." And abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Love that first part, right? I mean, he's compassionate and gracious. I'm going to unpack what that, I think that means in a lot of hard study about this punishing the generations. I know it doesn't mean that God is going to punish, you know, grandma's grandkids because she cheated on her taxes. I know it doesn't mean that. That's not how God rolls. So we're going to say, what, what does this mean? Now, here's the second point of foundation, laying a foundation. You become like the God you worship. Jesus is what God is like. People ask you, well, what is God like? He's like Jesus. Look at the earthly life of Jesus. God comes in human form and human likeness in the incarnation, and he demonstrates to the world what his father is like. So what Jesus is like is what God is like. And when you come across things in Scripture that do not sound like Jesus, then ask our rabbi, Jesus, what in the world does this mean? Because that doesn't sound like you. And Jesus will give you the right answer when you look into to his life. Jesus came to clear up what God was like. It says in John 1.18 that John says, no one has ever seen God, but God the Son, Jesus, has explained him, made him known. So what God is like is what Jesus is like, because Jesus is God. What Jesus is like is what God is like, so what Jesus is like God has always been. In Hebrews 13:8 says Jesus Christ the same yesterday today and forever. God didn't evolve into Jesus, go from being an irritated, you know, old guy in the sky to okay, I've evolved and become this nice Jesus. What God is like is is Jesus and it's always been. You see the importance of understanding that and grasping that because otherwise we're saying things about God that aren't true. We're believing things about God that aren't true. Jesus told his disciples he said, "He who has seen me has seen my Father." It's important that we grasp that. I study a lot of church history, read a lot of the church fathers and I encourage anyone and everyone to do that as well. The first 300 years of the church, man, when they talked about God or wrote about God, they would talk about the goodness of God, the fatherness of God, the love of God, and the beauty and vastness of the gospel. As a matter of fact, a guy named Athanasius, he said, what was a good God to do? He wrote a book on the incarnation. He said, what was a good God to do Watching his creation go into nothingness, Jesus stepped in to save the day for humanity. So you read this, and then all of a sudden, in about three or four hundred a d uh, Constantine, the Roman emperor at the time, he adopted Christianity as the the religion of the Roman Empire. So Christianity got very romanized. It was a timely joke this morning, Brian. It got very Romanized, and God became the lawgiver and the judge, and if you don't do this and out of order, he's going to... All this crazy talk began to happen, and there was a blending of politics and power and now Christianity. There are things that were done in the name of Jesus, like the Crusades, that have nothing to do with the message of Jesus and who he is. That's why this stuff is important. In about 700 AD, the, the British Isles as we know them today, England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, uh, was the Christianity was Celtic Christianity. And the Celtic, Christian, Celtic Christians took their cue from the early church pre-Rome. And they lived differently and they taught differently. Well, 700 AD, the Roman church wanted it the british isles to become roman rather than celtic and they had this little synod of whitby whitby was a little town in england and the romans somehow convinced the the celtic christians to adopt their view of theology and interpretation of scripture and so all of the british isles became you know roman in their thought and that has shaped western american understanding of jesus there's some things we need to unlearn. I'm not saying that the Roman church was all wrong or anything like that. God always has his people. But there's some things that affect the way we interpret scripture, the way we see Jesus. And I I don't think it's good. I think it needs to be unlearned. So all the things that we just read in Exodus 34 about God, that God says about himself, are true about Jesus. So here's what we need to do. Another foundational point. Worship and imitate the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Worship and imitate God revealed in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, Paul says, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And then the Apostle Paul makes a very bold statement in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, imitate me, as I imitate Christ. Now, I've kind of fallen in love with golf because I'm madly in love with my wife. She's fallen in love with golf, so I'm going to love golf too. And I've always stunk at golf, and I still do, but it's fun. It's, I'm having a great time. And there's a lot of love for golf in this church. Um, right, Brian? Thank you very much. And so I was thinking about this. If if I'm going to become a better golfer, whose swing do I want to to imitate? So I'm going to give you two clips, and you tell me which video, which person we should imitate. That's Charles Barkley. This might be the proper one to emulate. Boom, 400 yards. (laughs) Taylor May just got a shout-out on the live stream. (laughs) How about Charles? (laughs) That was terrible, man. So to... It is terrible. Um, To imitate Christ... That's what, that's what I want to talk about in this passage. How do we imitate Jesus? And looking at how God described himself is, is how Jesus is, and how do we imitate that? The first thing I would say is I need to strive to live compassionately. Compassion, our God is a compassionate God. And this Hebrew word for, for compassion is it's, it's parental in nature. It's how a parent has compassion on their kids. You ever notice this married people with kids? It's you see your kid come into the world and you hold them for the first time. And then you nurture them. And then you watch them learn to crawl. You change their little diaper. They move to Huggies and eventually pull ups. (laughs) Then they can go on their own. Then they're riding a bike and training wheels and you take those off and clickety-clack, clickety-clack, they're putting you in a home. <laughs> Life goes by fast, man. It just cruises. They get married and I'm in a home. But it's, when your kids blow it, it's easy to have compassion on them. When your spouse blows it, it's like, mm, they should know better, man they're an adult you should know better and it's just we give grace to our kids in a way we don't always give grace to our spouse so here's a little piece of advice i would say if you're struggling with your spouse get a picture of them as a as a young boy or young girl and keep it with you and when you get ticked off take a look at that little photo You'll see a young man or young woman who has hopes and dreams and hasn't been scarred and bruised and beat up by life. And then you'll have compassion on your spouse. Compassion marked the ministry of Jesus. In, in Matthew nine thirty-six, Jesus says he s- sees the people and the crowds and it says he was moved with compassion because they were discouraged and distressed like sheep without a shepherd. He is moved with compassion, not judgment. It moved his, his heart. Jesus had compassion on broken people. And so should His followers. Because that's how He is. Broken people flocked to Jesus. The, the religious and the judgmental people were repulsed by Jesus. Compassion rather than judgment. Do you know that, I was thinking about this this week, sin... Is punishment in many ways in itself. The guilt, the shame, the consequences that come with it. In many ways, it has its own innate punishment. Second thing is I need to practice living graciously. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord is gracious. Grace is an action word. It's an action word um, showing favor to someone. The Apostle Peter in the book of Acts is preaching the gospel and he says to this people, he says, you know the story of what happened in Judea. It began in Galilee after John preached a total life change. Then Jesus arrived from Nazareth anointed by God with the Holy Spirit ready for action. He went through the country helping people and healing everyone who was beaten down by the devil. He was able to do all this because God was with him. Jesus went around doing good caring for people. That's a gracious life. Now, it's important to know that mercy and grace are not the same thing. Mercy and grace are definitely in the same family, cousins probably. But mercy is treating someone better than they deserve. Grace is giving something to some, someone that they don't deserve. That's what grace really is. I was thinking about the, the story of Les Miserables. You, you read the book, saw the movies maybe? Let me know if I'm in... Okay. Couple of you understand this. Cool. Um, Jean Valjean is the star of the story. Jean Valjean is in prison and he gets out of prison and uh, he's down on his hard luck times and he runs into a priest. The priest takes him into his home. The priest gives him a hot meal, a place to sleep. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he sees these silver candlesticks that are going to be worth a lot. So he's just gone back to his old life of being a thief. And the priest wakes up and he catches him in the act doing it. And so he takes the candlestick and bam, right across the face, knocks him out. And the next morning, the police are bringing Jean Valjean back to the priest and wanting to get the story. And when he the priest sees Jean Valjean, he goes, "I'm very angry." With you, and Jean Valjean's like, "Oh, I'm going back to prison." He goes, "I'm very angry with you. Why didn't you take the rest of the silver? Why didn't that I gave you? That I gave you was the key word." And he goes and whispers in his ear, "He goes, today I've bought back your life." And Jean Valjean, through that act of grace, was truly transformed and became a graceful person himself. So mercy doesn't call the cops when you catch someone in the act of of stealing from you. Grace says, I caught you stealing from me, but take the TV and here I'm going to give you my laptop too. (laughs) That's really like if you want an illustration. So we need to practice living graciously if we're going to imitate Jesus. The third thing is I need to learn to be slow to anger. This one's difficult for me. I'm going to admit it in front of you guys. I get mad at the dumbest things. I don't get mad at people. I get mad when I can't put something together. I get mad when a grasshopper lands on me. I get mad when I spilt food yesterday that I wasn't supposed to fill. I mean, that kind of stuff just gets me. I'm convicted. I'm like, Lord, I got issues. Volumes in this area. To be slow to anger in the Hebrew, it's kind of funny. Like if you were to do a direct translation from Hebrew to English... It should say, "Long of nostrils." Because what do we do when we get angry? We flare our nostrils. So long of nostrils is the opposite of flaring your nostrils." I was on the phone with Troy Eggers, who's our electric guitar player the other day, and we were, I was talking on the phone with him, and we were, and it was something deep and these, bird, our neighbors' birds, come and poop all over our front porch. And that's kind of our little sanctuary. And then you don't poop in someone's sanctuary, right? And I was so mad at these birds. And they kept doing it over and over. And I was on the phone with him. And I was like, hold on. Shoe of birds and maybe a hair more colorful than yar, yar, yar. But you get my drift. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis or not. But there's a, a scene where he's with his cabinet and he's listening to his cabinet give all these reasons why they shouldn't abolish slavery. And he's listening, and he's listening. He's being slow to anger. And then finally, he just, bam, slams his fist. And he says, enough. He says, we're talking about human dignity here. It was powerful, powerful scene. James, the half-brother of, of Jesus, he echoes our passage of the day when he says, But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Husbands, how many are glad that your wives are slow to anger? Come on, I'm admitting it. <laughs> Somebody just held up their husband's hand. <laughs> Proverbs twenty one twenty nine eleven. 11, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Here's a good thing to practice in your life when it comes to anger. If you have anger issues or struggle in this area, ask yourself the question, do I get angry at the same things Jesus does? 99 times out of 100, probably not. It's usually somehow my discomfort, you know, sinful, sinful anger. There is a righteous anger. Anger in itself is not a sin. We're told be angry and sin not. Sinful anger is reactive, usually over selfish reasons or a wounded ego. It's usually why we get angry. Righteous anger, God's anger is proactive. It's not reactive. God's anger is, is proactive. Love gets angry at the right things. I was thinking about two times Jesus got angry in the temple. He goes into the temple, and he sees the people selling the animals for sacrifice and the money changers, and they'd turn, you know, the house of worship into a den of thieves. And in Jesus' righteous anger, he starts throwing the tables over, and they get really mad at him for wrecking business, man. And yet Jesus says, listen, uh, you're not going to turn my my father's house into a you know, a den of thieves, a a house of prayer. And then I thought about the time in John 11, where Jesus goes to the funeral of his friend, Lazarus, and he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus looks around before he does that. And he sees the people weeping and it says he wept. Then it says anger welled up inside of Jesus. He was angry at death. He was angry at what death did. He knew his mission to come and, and, and die a death and then be raised from the dead to defeat death. He didn't like that. Now, when you talk about the wrath of God, it's often kind of put in the category of the odd uncle at a family reunion that nobody likes, <laughs> that nobody wants to acknowledge sometimes. And I've heard people say, I can't believe in a God of wrath. Well, yes, you can. Because if you hate evil and injustice, God's anger is good. It's not bad. The wrath of God, the best definition I've ever heard of this, is his passionate no. His passionate no to evil and sin. It's like a parent. If your kid was going to put their hand in the fire, you're not too worried about whether you hurt their feelings as you slap their hand away to make sure they don't get burnt. It's not like, well, go ahead, burn it. I told you not to three times. On the fourth time, I'm going to let you burn your hand. No, nobody would do that. God is not mean in in this definition of sometimes people come up with. Now, God can be very dangerous. We're told to fear the Lord, but it's dangerous like gravity. You jump off a cliff, you're going to splat. You play with fire, you're going to get burnt. Or the, It's having a respect for gravity, having a respect for the sun and not, you know, getting sunburned, wearing sunscreen, so forth. All right. Next, to imitate Christ, I need to walk in love and faithfulness. I need to walk in love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness are covenant words. When two people get married, they're making a promise to walk in love and faithfulness to each other. Proverbs 3, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. So that's, this is wedding language here. Marriage is a promise and a contract. It's a promise you know, to be faithful—it's a promise to care for one another. It's also a legal contract that makes you married. When there's a lot of covenant language, you know, we have the old covenant and now the new covenant in Jesus. And covenants are promises that the two parties make. Now, God will always be faithful to His part of the covenant; He's promised that. So, when we go back to God says He will not let the guilty go unpunished consequences to the generations and so forth, he was telling Israel, the people of Israel who he made a covenant with, he said, listen, you're going to experience compassion, grace, gracious, graciousness, you know, slow to anger, forgiveness. If you walk in my covenant with me, if you choose to go for foreign gods and all that, there will be consequences. Let's talk about that a little bit. What did that mean? I don't believe in generational curses. Because I believe in Jesus Christ, who hung on the cross for us. He he took the curse. Now, are things passed on? Of course they are. Um, But it, it stops in Christ. It stops in the gospel if you choose to. You don't have to continue the sins of your parents. But... The reality is sin has collateral damage, right? Kids are affected by the decisions of their parents. That's just the way it goes. Good, bad, and indifferent. And listen, if you've blown it as a parent, there's grace. God is gracious. God is a redeemer. He works all things for the good. None of us are perfect parents or ever will be. That's just the reality. Another possibility is the reality that sin runs in the family like you know like father like son the apple doesn't fall from the far from the tree i mean kids begin to imitate their parents but i think the most accurate interpretation of that hard part of this passage is god is just no generation in israel was going to get a free pass is kind of what he's saying Walk in covenant with me, this generation and the generations beyond. Continue to walk in this covenant. That was his expectation of them. So, how does this apply to imitating Jesus? And how, how does that apply to you and I today? Here's what I, what I think it means. I need to resist being wise in my own eyes. If you want to imitate Jesus, don't be wise in your own eyes. Resist that. Resist being your own boss. Resist being your own Lord. Resist calling the shots in your life. Seek the will of the Lord every day. Seek the will of God. Walk in what, how Jesus has told us to walk. You might think, well, was Jesus wise in his own eyes? Isn't he God? Yes. But if you think about the mystery of the incarnation, he also had to learn who he was in his humanity, in his humanness as he read Scripture and walked through, through life. In, in Jesus' humanity, he walked in the Holy Spirit. He, he walked doing and seeking his Father's will. He would always say, not my will, but yours be done. He ate from the tree of life rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Proverbs three 7, Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. When we're wise and think we can make the right choices for us, there's going to be consequences. It's just the way it is. But to fear the Lord is to believe that he's good and that he actually knows what's best. He's a good father. Any good father is going to give their son or daughter good instructions because they understand life. Um, You've probably heard this proverb. uh, There's a way that seems right to man, and in the end it leads to death. The Passion Translation says it this way. You can rationalize it all you want and justify the path of error you have chosen, but you'll find out in the end that you took the road to destruction. Consequences for being wise in our own eyes, man. You see stories throughout Scripture. Every person God used still had those moments of failure. And they had to learn hard lessons. I've learned hard lessons in my life of being wise in my own eyes. We all have. It's a story of us all. Throughout the Bible, you see this principle of the the law of sowing and reaping. That if you put carrot seeds in the ground, you're not going to get potatoes. If you put potato seed in the ground, you're not going to get carrots. You sow carrots, you get carrots, and so forth. Well, in... uh, The book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is talking about either walking in the Spirit or walking in our own flesh, walking in our own desires, being wise in our own eyes. And he says, God will never be mocked, for what you plant will always be the very thing you harvest. The harvest you reap reveals the seed that you planted. If you plant the corrupt seeds of the self-life into this natural realm, You can expect a harvest of corruption. If you plant the good seeds of spirit life, you will reap beautiful fruits that grow from the everlasting life of the Spirit. Now, the tension between the mercy of God and the justice of God, the answer to that is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. And that's what the gospel, the good news, is all about just prior to that passage that I just read, the Apostle Paul says, he says, um, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's a promise that if we walk and we we have the ability to walk in the Spirit, we won't be gratifying the things that we know are are bad for us. But if we walk in the flesh, there's going to be consequences. Man, we've all been there, right? Got the t-shirt as well. (laughs) Been there, done that. But I think it's beautiful that that's both a principle, a promise, and a command, to walk in the Spirit. Here's the good news. Jesus came and accomplished for us what we could never do in ourselves. There's three enemies to every human being. Sin, death, and the evil one. Those three enemies, Jesus came to deal a death blow to all three. And he accomplished it through living a selfless life, totally in tune with his father through the spirit. And then he submits himself to a brutal death at the hands of sinful men. And then he rises from the grave to kick death's butt and to deal, strip back the authority from the evil one. Because now He has all authority. And when you walk in Him, you have authority over the evil spiritual world. Now, if that's true, Scott, why is there still sin? Why is there still death? And why is there still evil in our world? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> it is not done. What, what, what will be is in process right now. It's, it's a matter of fact. Here, here's my illustration. At the end of World War II, when the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, and they, the, the war was declared over at that point, but there were still little small battles throughout Europe. Paris had to be overthrown. Uh, Bulgaria, many many places had to had to go on. So there was 336 days, for, from D-Day to what we call V-Day, the full victory day of of that war being completely over. Here's what you got to understand: we are living in between D-Day and V-Day, spiritually speaking. Jesus defeated the enemies of sin, death, and the evil one. And it will be fully realized when he comes back to the earth. When Jesus returns and at the resurrection, he's going to recreate this earth. We're going to get brand new bodies. Anybody happy about that? You're going to get a brand new body. And we're going to live in a world without sin, sorrow, death, sickness, war, infighting. There will be complete harmony for the rest of eternity. We're longing for that day. We're longing for that day. But he's, God is patient. And He's, he's patient with, with, with human beings. He wants the gospel to go forward into all the earth. And everyone to hear the good news of what Jesus did for us. So in the meantime, us as His followers, we want to imitate Jesus. We want to be compassionate, gracious, slow to anger rich in love and faithfulness because that's what the world is dying for would you stand with me we're going to respond by singing good good father because he is a good good father and as we sing today give him your heart give him your mind think about his goodness ask him Lord if there's anything about you that I'm misrepresenting in how I see the Bible how I see you show me Look into the face of Jesus and see the love of his Father for you. thinking about um, imitating Jesus as we were singing that, and I went back to a memory that when I was a, on staff at Faith Bible Chapel, and Pastor George was out of town, and he normally led the communion. They would have these communion, uh, like a cabinet with all the little communion stuff, and people, pastors would go pass out the communion. And one of my pastor friends was called to lead the communion that night and I was standing up with him and we just were doing what we saw the other pastors always do And so he took some plates of bread and put it over here took the cups and he put the bread back in the cabinet put the cups back in and I go what are you doing? He goes that's just what I always see George doing so I'm just imitating him that made me laugh because he had no idea what he was doing and you know sometimes it just doesn't make sense like you want to blow up at somebody or you want to do what feels good to you rather than imitate Jesus, and it doesn't make sense. Do what he does. it's the best life there is. The best life there is is to 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 follow Jesus. I want to encourage anyone if if you've never agreed with Jesus that he's Lord and Savior, that's what faith is is I agree you come into that relationship with him and then put into practice what he says to do it's not going to be an easy life but it will be the true good life let me pray father thank you that you are good and that we can count on that every day thank you that you never ever turn away a contrite or repented heart even when we blow it really bad thank you for that Jesus, thank you for showing us the Father. Thank you for your victory over sin, death, and the evil one. We long for your return and the fulfillment of your kingdom. Until then, help us to walk in the Holy Spirit's power every day, being mindful of you, to love you, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and truly our neighbor as ourselves. Thank you for this day, thank you for the time to, to gather together In Jesus' name. Amen.